Brought to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Code Mesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November with tutorials on the 2nd of November. The program is up and a new keynote has been announced. Connor McBride talking space monads. Connor joins the other keynotes, Joe Armstrong interviewing Alan Kay, and Joe Armstrong and Sam Aaron performing a distributed jamming session with Sonic Pi and Erlang. Other speakers include Sophie Wilson, who designed the instruction set of the ARM processor, which became the de facto model used in 21st century smartphones, PureScript creator Phil Freeman, Professor Dan Friedman of The Little Schemer, and Essentials of Programming Languages, Fame, and many more. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FunctionalGeekery10. Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Donks, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build the network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit ScalaWave.io to find out more and to sign up for the newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. Closure College is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Closure. Visit 2016.closure-conj.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Closer, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at fngeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. Closure D has been announced will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. The call for talks is still open, but only through October 31st, and early bird tickets are also available. And Closure D hopes to get a diverse range of speakers, so they and I would like to encourage you to submit a proposal if you're an underrepresented member of the community. For more information, to submit your proposal, and to register, visit www.closured.de. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Nick Swamy. Nick, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Proctor, for asking me to be on. I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research in Redmond. I work here at a research group called Research and Software Engineering, 
which is a pretty broad group. We have about 30-something researchers working in a, a really broad bunch of areas related to software engineering. Many of us, like myself, are into programming languages and, and program verification. There are others who work here who are into other aspects of software engineering, ranging from things like static analysis and testing, and some people even looking at empirical software engineering, things like studying developer behaviors to try to extract knowledge about developer patterns and when they write bugs and when they're producing good code and, and so on. So it's a really kind of a, a broad research group, and I've been here for about eight years. And I work a bunch on this language called F-Star, among other things. But F-Star is my main project these days, which I guess we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about. And that's exactly why I reached out to you, was I had past guests and listeners talk about and bring up the concept of F-Star. Usually the people in the F-Sharp community making mention to it, or some of the larger .NET community, and say, F-Star, F-Star... And I'd hear about this and wasn't quite sure. So I wanted to, in addition to me doing my research, expose F-Star to people who haven't necessarily heard about it either. So I went to the Microsoft page for F-Star, found your contact info, and wanted to get some rundown. So F-Star-Lang.org, is that where you went to? I believe so. It was whatever the uh, search results took me to. And I think it was the F-Star-Lang site versus the Microsoft research site. Yeah, I think what comes up these days is F-Star-Lang. And so... Before we get into F-Star and what it is, because it's around the functional programming language, what was some of your background and how did you first get exposed to some of these ideas that actually brought you into working on something and working on a language? So what was some of the background that led you to get to how you're now working on F-Star today and what appeals to you about working on something like that? Well, I guess it's kind of a, a long story, but I came to... Programming, I suppose, relatively late compared to some people I meet these days. I was an undergrad in college at a place called Hampshire College in, in Massachusetts. And I was mostly into math and physics and stuff at the time. And I came across programming while sort of trying to do sort of numerical simulations of differential equations, this kind of thing. And soon sort of Got sucked into it and got really interested at that time. I must have been like, this is maybe 20 years ago, into reading a bit and uh, learning a bit about automated theorem proving, where at the time I was looking at theorem provers that were things of the sort that are doing resolution and superposition-based provers. So basically, these are theorem provers where you write down a formula in relatively simple logic, something like, say, first-order logic with equality. And maybe even the use of quantifiers is like greatly restricted. So maybe even just sort of propositional logic, predicate logic with equality. And then they have various algorithms that kick in that try to decide whether or not a formula is valid and try to do this entirely automatically. And that's something that I dabbled in a bit as an undergrad. And so uh, I was always into, I've been into sort of automated theorem proving for some time. And then um, in grad school at the University of Maryland, where I got my PhD, I was exposed more to interactive theorem proving using typed functional programming in a variety of systems, things like COC and NAGDA and even other things. Like, So I've worked for a bunch on, on a system called Cyclone. During grad school, I worked on Cyclone. It's a programming language that's a language that operates at the C level of abstraction. So you write programs that really work with a very explicit representation and of memory and carefully control layout of the data structures that you're working with and also lets you control lifetime of those objects by doing malloc and free and 
It had various memory management strategies. And a very sophisticated type system lets you prove that your programs were safe, that they never read out of bounds or did double freeze or use after free, these kinds of things. And that, I guess, was my first serious exposure to using sophisticated programming language techniques to prove properties by programs. And something clicked at that point that, you know, I'd, I'd had this little bit of a background in automated theorem proving. And at that point, I kind of formed some connection about, well, black box automation can only take you so far. And being able to have deep control into a system that a user interacts with to prove properties that they're interested in and get the machine to check these proofs reliably was a really powerful idea for me at the time. And also the idea of you actually prove properties by programs that you write rather than just proving theorems in a more abstract setting, like theorems about math, like actually doing proofs about programs was something that really clicked for me early in grad school. And it's around that time that I started to really get into this mixture of programming and proving and interactive proving and automated proving. And that's kind of the thing that FSTAR is today. So FSTAR is a programming language that's inspired by the ML family of languages. So it's a higher order typed mostly functional but effectful programming language, meaning that if you're familiar with languages like OCaml and F-sharp and, and Haskell, F-star should be familiar. Unlike Haskell, it's actually strict, so it's more like OCaml in that sense. And it's got a type system that's significantly more powerful than, than these languages that I've mentioned. So it's got a type system that's actually more like the type system of Coq. So it's a dependent type theory that lets you essentially state and prove arbitrary properties of programs or arbitrary properties in statements in math. And the F-star system, the type checker, you work with it to build proofs of these properties that you've stated. And you do this using a combination of interactive proof where the user spends quite some effort in sort of spelling out the structure of, of the proof uh, that they're interested in and automated proof. So it uses an SMT solver. So SMT is a satisfiability modulo theories. So there are these automated theorem provers that have come like so much further than those systems that I was working with as an undergrad, where you now have these theorem provers that, um, that work with first order logic and augmented with a number of theories, including equality in arithmetic and other theories to maps, uh, data types, these kinds of things. And if you build a formula in such a logic and feed it to one of these SMT solvers, it, in many cases, can very efficiently decide, despite the theoretical difficulty of the problems, in practice, the problems you can feed to an SMT solver, it is often able to decide whether or not that that formula is valid in a few hundred milliseconds. So in FSTAR, you use this combination of an SMT solver running as your proving buddy in the background with this style of interactive proof where you're writing your program and you're stating and proving properties about your programs. So that's been a kind of an evolution for me for quite some time. But I think where FSTAR is today and where I see it going is I think it's trying to really hit a sweet spot between having an extremely expressive proof system backed by just enough automation through these SMT solvers to allow you to manage these proofs and get them to go with relative ease as opposed to really writing out extremely detailed proofs like you do in some other systems that have only interactive proof rather than SMT back proof also. So that's what it's kind of a long winded answer. I'm happy to elaborate on any of those things. If. And so you gave an overview of F star and 
you mentioned that it's both a prover and a dependent type system. And that means that, as opposed to some of the other languages that are used for proving, this is one of those languages that you would actually write your whole software in and be able to prove the current software that you're writing instead of just having software and then another piece of language or tool go work to prove your software. That's correct? Well, I think I wouldn't really emphasize that the you know, you said that it, it's got something to do with it being a, a dependent type system and a prover. Well, the way I see it, most sufficiently powerful dependent type systems are also provers in some sense. Like you can take a system like Coq and you can state and prove pretty much anything that you want with sufficient effort. What FSTAR is trying to do in that space is simply trying to make that effort a little bit lower by making use of automation in as much as it's possible. So I don't see that in and of itself like impacting whether or not you can use FSTAR to, to build and prove existing software. The part of FSTAR's design that I think is particularly relevant to that aspect is that FSTAR, in addition to being a dependent type theory and with the proving capabilities it provides, it's actually also an effectful programming language. So unlike, say, classic dependent type theory, FSTAR really embraces effects. So a big part of its system, of the FSTAR system, is describing you can write, say, non-terminating programs, or you can write programs that are going to do I.O. or are going to mutate some state or raise exceptions or have non-determinism or, you know, have all, all these things that are inherently effectful behavior that are typically considered impure functional. These kinds of things are not features of pure functional programs, although they are very common features of real software. And FSTAR embraces these things, brings them into this logic in which you can use this dependent type theory to describe properties about these effectful computations and use a pure logic for your proofs, but to write your programs using a control system of effects and then to have the two sort of work together. And that, I think, is what FSTAR is trying to do to sort of straddle this divide between programming and proving. It's a full-fledged programming language in which you can program web servers and crypto protocols and compilers, and, and you can also write proofs about these programs within the same system. Okay. And I know dependent types nowadays have started leaning towards being more the stuff that you're going to write stuff in more often with other languages like Idris and along with FSTAR starting to push that bounds of you're not just writing your proofs and this is an outside tool you're writing your proofs in and proving something in another language is, but you're actually proving your software automatically while using the types that you've defined in your software that you're writing as opposed to having some outside system which is proving a C program or some other program that it knows how to interop with and read those bytecodes and do the analysis of. Right, that's right, that's right. So I think this is very much part of the using some kind of type theory to, to prove properties about your programs. I mean, inherently, you try to use the language itself sort of has some inherently good properties and you, you try to make use of those properties that the type system gives you to express and state your proofs. So... In a way, if you take even Java and take Java's type system, yeah, there are tools that analyze Java bytecode after the fact and try to prove some property about it. But the Java type system is not particularly dependently typed or anything, but you use the type system to prove many useful properties about your Java programs. In particular, a property that the Java type system aims to, to give you is that for any well-typed Java program, you have a proof that that program is memory safe. And that type system is geared to proving just that property. Now, with 
a more expressive type system, like say Idris or FSTAR or something, there are some generally good properties that the type system gives you. For instance, any well-typed program is guaranteed to be memory safe, but it also gives you many other properties. And the type system is flexible enough for you to state and prove properties that are very specific to the particular program that you have at hand, rather than being a generic property of all programs. So I can write in my type system that this program is really sorting a list of numbers. And the types allow me to express and prove that very particular property of my sorting algorithm, which is not something that the Java type system is going to let you do. But it's just a matter of degrees in some senses. More powerful type systems let you prove more specific properties. And that gets into dependent types. And just as a recap and overview of dependent types for anybody who is unfamiliar or still doesn't quite grasp the concept, when you talk about being able to express sorting a list as inherent in the type declaration, that becomes something where you can declare a list of some type of A that is comparable and put in the type definition that if you have A1 that comes before A2, that A1 compares to less than A2 for every set of element in that list as part of the type declaration. is It becomes something more along the lines of that versus just having a list of ints, right? Yes, yes. So to a very crude approximation, I mean, uh, there's fairly well-established theory that shows that what I'm about to say is only a crude approximation. This doesn't work at arbitrary orders, but it's quite maybe useful intuition to really just start by thinking about types as sets. And when you say I have a type, like I have a type int, let's say, this describes a set of terms, a set of values, all of which happen to be integers. So that set has stuff like minus one and 17 and whatnot. But you could also have another set. You could say um, I have the type of natural numbers, which is a subset of the integers. It has only the non-negative ones. And in this manner, you could say, oh, I have the type of lists of, of, of natural numbers where each element is a list. So it's either the empty list or a list with one element or a list with two elements. And in all these lists, in this set, in every one of these lists, all the elements happen to be natural numbers. And that's sort of carving out some set of values. Well, you can play this game to kind of arbitrary precision. I can say, oh, I have a type and my type is zero. And the type is the type that, that contains, say, no elements. That's the, the zero, the, the empty type in some sense. Or I can say it's the type that contains exactly the element 17. And this is a type that has only one element, the integer 17. Or it could be, I have the type of sorted lists of integers. And that's kind of the type that you were describing, which is, it's all the list, integer lists, but it's only those ones that happen to, whose elements happen to be in sorted order. So in many type systems that have this kind of expressive power, you can kind of describe a type that's really going to carve out exactly the set of values that your, that your function is meant to compute and say this, this one, it computes exactly the set of sorted lists and that's it. It's not going to build anything else. And then that's able to, take those types and essentially do some magic in the sense of sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic if you don't understand it, that says, I'm going to generate something like generative testing or some other analysis that says, if you take in a list and you expect to sort a list back, that I know that that software in the way that it has its internal execution is going to result in a sorted list. and know that it meets that type declaration. 
that's the SMT stuff you were talking about that helps determine that? Or how does F-sharp kind of go about that at a very high level to determine that those types are held true? Yes. So you mentioned testing. So testing is interesting. So when you're testing a program, which is far and away the predominant way in which we all kind of gain some assurance that our programs are doing something reasonable, what you are really effectively trying to do is to attempt to disprove your program. You're trying to take your program and feed it a bunch of inputs and see if there is a particular input on which your program does something unexpected. And if it does something unexpected at that point, it computes the wrong result, then you know that, oh, your, your program has got a bug in it and you go and fix it. And you do this for a while. And you feed it a thousands, millions of inputs. And at some point you give up and you're like, well, it seems like it's doing the right thing on these million inputs. I've exhausted my testing budget and that's good enough for most of us. And we're like, okay, fine. I'm done. I'm going to now just unleash this piece of tested code on the universe. Now, of course, the strategy of testing a program like this is not guaranteed to rule out the presence of any bug. It's only going to give you some confidence that on some certain executions, there is no bug. So as opposed to testing, program verification is the discipline of not disproving your program, but proving your program, proving that for all inputs that you might give to this program, it really computes the right answer and proving that analytically, like being able to decide that using some means of reasoning, different systems use different techniques, but these techniques allow you to analyze all possible executions of your program and to prove, prove in the sense of like proven a logic, prove mathematically that none of these executions exhibit any bad behavior. So in the case of F star, and this is the general idea here is the same in all dependent type theories. So this is what I'm about to say is true for Idris and Koch and Agda and, and Lean, another dependently type language that is being developed in my research group here. Essentially, at its core is a type lambda calculus. And in the type theory of that lambda calculus, there are certain proof rules which govern how you're allowed to build programs or build terms. And those proof rules can be interpreted as axioms in a logic. They tend to be rather compact, like these tend to have just a small number of these rules, literally just a handful, maybe five or six. And you can show that any a program built using just those proof rules, if you can show that I built a program and it has a type which says that this program computes a list of sorted integers, then really, if you compute with it and you reduce it, it's going to always reduce to a normal form. And this normal form is going to just be a value that's going to be a sorted list of integers. So as for the precise structure of these particular proof rules that these various dependent type systems use, there are several variations, but the essential idea is usually the same in all of them. And if you've seen a simpler type system, these rules have a fairly kind of syntactic nature. And they're of the form that, you know, you have, a say, a type of functions from t to t prime. And if you have a value of type t and a function of type t arrow t prime, well, you can apply the function to the value and you get back a, a something of type t prime. And the only thing you can do with a function is to apply it to some argument. And these proof rules then determine the ways in which you can build valid terms. So that's under the covers. That's what F star is also doing. But it turns out that in many places, say when you're applying a function and the function expects an argument of a natural number or expects a positive number as, um, let's keep it simple. Let's say that the function expects a natural number as its argument. 
and I, I have a function f from some natural number to t, and I apply f to, say, x squared. And I need to now prove that if x is an integer, then x squared is definitely non-negative. And so this is a proof obligation that says I must show that x squared is non-negative. And what happens at that point in the case of f star is that that proof obligation gets fed to a theorem prover that understands arithmetic. And you ask it, is it true that for all x that are integers, x squared is non-negative? And it's going to say, yes, this is true. Based on what this theorem prover, this SMT solver says in the background, f star then decides, okay, this program that you wrote is in fact well-typed, and I'm going to allow you to write this function application and, and agree to type check your program. I think that starts to help. And that was kind of where I was getting it, as I knew it wasn't quite testing, but I wasn't sure how it translated into something that said, I'm taking analysis, and just back to that sort of list, is that I expect this thing to have some sort of Harrison operator in it to make sure that I'm returning it sorted ascending versus sorted descending versus just random order. And mm-hmm. so it's going through and looking at the different statements. It's analyzing the different paths that could go through. And all of a sudden it's coming back with, is there anything that can somehow it determines that breaks the constraint at the type level that says, you said this was supposed to be sorted from an, just a list of natural numbers to a list of natural numbers sorted. Yeah. There's some magic in there that essentially reduces that out and says, there are a handful of ways I know about that can make sure that it gets transformed this way. And it does the analysis through what it sounded like, that SMT proofs in the background that's been compiled, right? Or do I go and add some more of those logics that says, here's how I can help make sure that this thing is proved? So I was going to try to prove it by using a mixture of its own type checking logic and also these queries of an SMT solver. And you can always add hints and you say, well, for instance, you're trying to do a quick sort. And what you're doing in quick sort is you take a list, you take a pivot, some element from the list, and then you partition the list into two chunks, those elements less than or equal to the pivot and those that are greater than the pivot. And then you recursively sort each chunk. And then you put them back together, right? Sticking the pivot in the middle. So that's quick sort. But in order to convince the proof that quick sort actually produces a sorted list involves reasoning about for instance, that there's a lemma, in some sense, a property that tells you that if you have a sorted list L in which every element of that list is less than some pivot P, and you have a sorted list M where every element in M is greater than the pivot P, then if you take L first, you stick P in the middle, and then you take M afterwards, that the whole thing is actually sorted. And without this fact, you will not be able to prove that quicksort actually produces a sort list. So when you write quicksort and you want to convince F star or any system that quicksort is actually producing a sorted list, you need to prove this property that I just mentioned. And the way you can do that is by, for instance, doing a proof by induction over the lengths of the lists and showing that if you actually concatenate L with the pivot and M, that you end up with a sorted list. You do some proof by induction about it. You can express that proof by induction by the Curry-Howard isomorphism, these proofs by induction turn out to be just programs in F star that happen to be total recursive functions. And you write such a proof, you express to F star that here's this lemma, it's my proof that this property holds true, and then you use that property in conjunction with all the other, say, SMT reasoning that F star is doing in the background. 
to build a complete proof that actually quicksort does what you expect it to do. So that proof of that lemma is in some sense a hint to the system that, hey, I know this property is true and here's how I express the proof. It's this proof by induction. And Nevstar makes use of that to complete the proof. Okay, that starts to make more sense in my head and I hope it will make some more sense to the audience as they listen to this if they are unfamiliar with these topics as well. Yeah, so if you go to fstarlang.org, there's a tutorial over there about how some of this stuff works. And it starts really from, it's sort of geared at someone who has a bit of experience programming in, say, in any type of functional language. So if you have some background in OCaml, F-sharp, standard ML, Haskell, just a little bit of background in it, that tutorial sort of starts from there saying, here's how you write simple ML programs in F-star. And then it starts to talk about how you can start to prove properties about your program. So for instance, things like this quicksort example are spelled out in some detail in that tutorial. And it's interactive. Like There's a web interface that lets you implement some variant of quicksort or implement some other sorting algorithm, merge sort or insertion sort or something. And you can then play with F-star to see if you can convince it that your algorithm is correct. That sounds pretty neat. And I'll make sure to include the links in the show notes for anybody who's listening to go back and find that pretty easily. Cool. And then as part of setting up the pre-call, you also mentioned that F-star has some stuff going on with a popple paper about some Dijkstra monads, and you mentioned that F-star embraces the effectful side effects. And I'm assuming that the monad stuff that you're looking at with, I guess, Dijkstra monads versus horror monads, which is beyond my head at this point, but you were talking about earlier as well that it is a language that embraces these effects. I'm assuming that's your manner of embracing these effects. So do you want to give a rundown of some of the stuff that's coming with that paper and give an overview for what it means to embrace these effects? Yeah, so in F-star, you can define a monad just like you would, say, in Haskell. and say, here's my state monad. And my state monad, you can think of it as a function that takes an initial state, produces some result, and some final state. And in a system like Haskell, you typically can just say, this is a function, it's in the state monad, so it operates on some state and produces some result, but that's about it. I can't say that much more about it. Well, in F-star, you can say, well, it's in the state monad, and actually what it does is it reads only this fragment of the state. It only reads the references X and Y, and it writes to the reference Z, and what it writes to Z is exactly the sum of the contents of the references X and Y. So unlike in Haskell, in Haskell, you just say, oh, have some computation. It's an STA. It's, a, it's an ST with a result type A. In F-star, you say it's an ST, it has a result type A, and it has this very precise specification that tells you exactly what that stateful computation does. Now, there are many ways in which you can try to like structure that specification. And what F-star does is it uses this idea called a Dijkstra monad, which I proposed with some colleagues in a paper from, say, four or five years ago. And the main idea with this Dijkstra monad is that given a computation, you want to be able to compute from the structure of that computation a specification for that computation that's kind of a precise logical characterization of what that computation is doing. And one classic method for doing this is due to Dijkstra, who in the 70s had came up with this idea of predicate transformer semantics for programs. So there's this notion of a weakest precondition of a program that given a program and some property that you want to prove about that program, you can compute a weakest precondition. It's a formula that's a 
sufficient condition to establish that if you start running the program in a configuration that satisfies the sufficient condition, then the program is going to execute and produce a result that satisfies this post condition P that you were interested in to start with. And so Dijkstra was formulating these WPs in the context of typically imperative first order programming languages. And this Dijkstra monad idea kind of takes the idea of WP, weakest preconditions, and generalizes them so that they work for arbitrary higher order programs, for arbitrary effects. Now, whether you're doing state or exceptions or non-determinism or any kind of effect that you can think of, if you can describe your effect as a monad, like in, say, Haskell style, then what our most recent Popple paper shows is that from that description, from its monadic description, we can derive for free, this is the for free part, Dijkstra monads for free is the title of the paper. Given such a monad, we can derive a weakest precondition calculus that is suitable for reasoning about computations that make use of that monad. So the way this works in F-star is that if you want to write effectful code in F-star, and maybe you're interested in, say, exceptions, you write the exception monad, and then you tell F-star, oh, you know what, take that monad and derive for me a weakest precondition calculus for it. So we'll do that. And then you can start to write programs that use arrays and try with and whatnot. And we'll compute this weakest precondition for your program. So that's this logical summary of what your program is doing in full precision. And then if you write a specification, you say, oh, here's my program. It may raise an exception, but it only raises an exception if its argument is zero. Say it's doing division. And say, if you call me with a zero argument, this thing may divide by zero and will, it will throw an exception. But in all other cases, it definitely doesn't throw an exception and returns a natural number. And that's your specification of your program. What F-star will do is it will compute this very precise WP, this logical summary of your program, and try to check that your specification, that this thing about your program not raising exceptions unless you call it with a zero, and show that the logical summary is sufficient to prove the property that you're interested in. And it will do that using the same means that it uses to prove, for instance, that a list is sorted or that x squared is greater than or equal to zero or whatever. It will make use of an SMT solver combined with whatever hints that you may provide in terms of lemmas and try to build a proof that inferred WP implies the property that the programmer wrote down. So that's what that paper is about. It's how to do this, how to sort of get WPs for free, if you like. That sounds pretty strange and interesting, at least from the perspective of someone who's unfamiliar with this. The fact that it can be pulled off to that extent is, again, a little bit of magic and very odd to think about that we can actually start to be able to describe and reason about our software at that level, yet wonderful at the same time that these tools are becoming available and becoming more and more mainstream. And the fact that they aren't just something that you might have to spend a whole lot of time down the line and a whole bunch of research years still pursuing to be able to start to get some of the stuff and that we're nearing the feasibility for anybody on the web to go out and go download this language and get it and play with it. Be on the cusp of that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, in the last decade or so, it's really been an amazing time in programming languages and program verification in particular. 
the tools that people have been building for a long time are starting to reach a point where they actually are beginning to scale to programs of the kind of complexity that one tends to write in practice. And I think there's this kind of education gap that you were talking about a little while ago about. I think students these days are coming out of colleges all over the world increasingly well prepared to think about their programs in this formal manner and being able to describe precisely what their programs are intended to do. And even just that, just being able to describe what your program is intended to do is a huge, huge step forward. Whether or not you're able to prove that your program does that is a different question. But just being able to specify it and to think about your program in those terms, I think really clarifies your thinking when you go about actually trying to implement your program in whatever language you may actually choose. Just So I think that we're sort of maybe nearing a kind of tipping point in this area where it's becoming increasingly feasible to think about your programs, real programs, in this very formal manner. The day when I can prevent myself from falling into the trap of programming by coincidence seems a day that I want to have sooner than later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're close to time, but I want to make sure we at least leave a little bit of time because you wanted to be able to bring up the topic of Project Everest. So oh, do yeah. you want to give a quick rundown and overview of Project Everest and how that fits into some of the stuff that you're doing and at least raise awareness of it, even if we don't get to dive deep on it? But I want to make sure we at least save some time to let the audience know about it. Yeah. So Project Everest is this a relatively new joint project between uh, several Microsoft research labs. That's uh, the one that I'm at here in Redmond, the one in Cambridge, UK, and the one in India, as well as INRIA, which is the French National Research and Computer Science Organization. And there's about something like 18 or 20 of us working on Project Everest, whose stated goal is to build and deploy a verified drop-in replacement for the HTTPS stack. So HTTPS, as most of your listeners probably know, is this protocol that things like your web browser implement that are intended to allow you to communicate securely over the internet. So for example, if you go to your bank, it usually says httpsbank.com, which is supposed to give you an encrypted connection between you and your bank. Now, HTTPS over the years, it's kind of the best of what we have. The recommendation is clearly that you use HTTPS when you go and connect to your bank, but it's sadly been quite vulnerable to various uh, security flaws over the past couple of decades. So at its heart is a suite of protocols called TLS, or Transport Layer Security, it used to be called SSL, so you may be familiar with, with that terminology. And TLS itself, this crypto protocol at the heart of it, and its implementations, things like OpenSSL, have over the years been really beat up by many, many security-critical flaws, including uh, these days maybe the most well-known one is Heartbleed, which was a, a low-level vulnerability in several TLS implementations that exploited a buff overrun to allow you to extract secrets from an SSL server. But there have been many other deeper sort of flaws as well, including in the design of these protocols, not just their implementations. So what we're doing is working on building a formally verified implementation of all the protocols that are underneath HTTPS. So this includes TLS. This includes the crypto algorithms beneath it, things that are implementing stuff like elliptic curve crypto and RSA and AES and hashing algorithms, SHA and so on all the crypto algorithms that you need in order to run these protocols, the protocols themselves, 
and things like X509, which is this standard for public key infrastructure, where when you go to, say, Microsoft.com, the way you establish that you are indeed talking to Microsoft.com is that Microsoft.com presents you with a certificate signed by some certificate authority that identifies it as Microsoft.com. And that's a key part of making all this this establishing trust on, on the internet in some sense. So all these protocols together and a few others besides, in effect, make up this HTTPS ecosystem. And what we're doing is programming all this stuff in FSTAR and verifying it for both functional correctness and security, and then compiling it to efficient low-level code, including C. We have a project that's compiling a subset of FSTAR programs to C. And also, we have some crypto algorithms that are written in a new tool called Spartan that allow you to write crypto implementations at the assembly level and prove them correct. And we're using other, it's not just FSTAR, we're using other verification tools to pull this off. There's a Another tool called Daphne, also from my research group here, that's being used to verify assembly-level programs. So Everest is about putting all these pieces together, getting a formal guarantee that, in the sense of like mathematical theorems, that these programs are doing exactly what they claim to do. So in the case of TLS, the kind of thing that we're proving is that if I have a TLS connection with you, Proctor, then unless some basic crypto assumptions that most people believe are true turn out to be false. For instance, maybe factoring a number actually turns out to be possible in polynomial time. So based on some hardness of some crypto assumptions, I can prove that the TLS connection that I have with you allows me to send messages only to you without a third party being able to either snoop on the content or to alter the content by injecting their own traffic on our connection. So in a way, we get a secure channel between the TLS when run properly with good crypto actually establishes a secure channel. So that's what Everest is about. And we're banging away, putting our tools to the test in some sense, using it to build and prove high performance, fairly large scale implementations of code that we hope you'll be able to run yourself in your browser someday in the next, say, the timeline we're looking at is, is on the order of the next, say, two to four years. We hope to have deployable, verified implementations of this stack available in that kind of time frame. So that's what a bunch of us are working on. And it's kind of the main project that FSTAR is these days in service of. So a lot of the language features and even this popple paper, the improvements that we make to FSTAR are largely these days in service of being able to write and prove Everest software correct. And that sounds like a fantastic use of the fact that you get all this because by doing a project that's this audacious and has known to have a number of problems in the past and that we're still kind of stuck with, whether or not it's implementation details or bad assumptions of polynomials, as you said, or even just proving out that the protocol behaves as expected at a higher level that says when we handshake, we do take the highest of the supported that the client has, that the server provides, and having something at that level, that yep. you're proving that at an infrastructure level, but you're also proving F-star at the same time by having something that audacious that you can prove and say, this is something that is real. This is not just a thought experiment that we're putting out here with F-star, but we were actually able to build something substantial and useful out of and get something that is needed 
So it sounds like a win-win in that case for having both of these projects together and the way they play together. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun kind of designing a language in service of some very concrete application also and sort of putting the two to the test together. It's a, it's a really fun project, really fun way to interact. So, And we're coming up on the end of our scheduled time. So is there anything else that you want to plug that we haven't made mention to and at least raise on people's radar? Do you have any upcoming appearances? You mentioned the Popple paper for Popple 17. Are you going yourself? Is there any place that you're going to be talking about this elsewhere or any other side projects around here, or just things in general you want people to know about? So there's Popple, where myself and many others working on FSTAR will be there. We'll have a paper, and we may even have a tutorial about FSTAR at Popple that's to be determined. At another conference in Paris in April, this is Euro S&P, it's security and privacy, IEEE security and privacy in Paris. In April, we're running a workshop on how we prove TLS correct using FSTAR. So if you're interested in applications of FSTAR and on the, on the crypto side, that uh, workshop that you may be interested in. And those are the two main things that come to mind right now um, as places where you can interact with people on working on FSTAR in person. But we're also on um, FSTAR's developed open source on GitHub, and we have a fairly active issue list. And for people who are working on FSTAR and have questions, that we have a recently somebody created a, a Slack channel on FSTAR where you can sort of jump in and ask questions as you're trying to work on stuff. And um, otherwise, do try fstarlang.org and our tutorial and get in touch with anyone working on the FSTAR team if you want to know more and be happy to help you sort of, if you want to try it out, be happy to help you get started and um, answer your questions. And then do you have a call to action you want to leave the listeners with? Call to action. Specify before proving, I mean, before programming even. I mean, think about what your programs are trying to do and, and try to write down, even informally, on your whiteboard or, or a piece of paper, what you intend for your program to do before even trying to write a line of code. That sounds like a great challenge and something to try, just even if you've never done it, just to make sure you're, as I said earlier, that I'm bad at falling into the trap of programming by coincidence just out of habit. But it sounds like a great call to action to force yourself to think about and say, okay, now at this point, I'm going to pen and paper, play computer, and prove out what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I mean, even if the proof thing is, can, can be quite hard, but I think it's just writing down, like write down some specification for, even if it's just in English or your favorite natural language, I mean, say, oh, I expect my function to only be called under these circumstances, and I expect it to produce these results if called under these circumstances. And just doing that and doing that systematically is um, good discipline. So you mentioned where people can do the F-Star and find out more information about that, like the Slack channel and the site. But where can people find more about you and keep updated with your updates and anything that comes out that you're involved with as well? So I don't have too much of an online presence on Twitter or, or anything, but there's a, a new FSTAR blog that's coming up. So there's something that it's hosted off the FSTAR Lang GitHub site. And that's one place where you can you can see new stuff coming up. And I'll get that link to in the show notes, as well as all the other resources for FSTAR that you mentioned then as well. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Nick, for taking your time to join me today. You covered a lot. I don't know how much I got, but I think this is at least 
for me and I hope for the audience, a good starting point of some of those other ideas that are out there that can start to seep in and percolate and be absorbed with some other ideas and know that there is a language amongst others to be able to go and find some of these resources to start pulling some of these ideas in as the learning progresses. So thanks again and helping expose me to a bunch of stuff that I wasn't even sure that was on my radar and put some known unknowns on my radar of things to look forward to in the future. Well, thanks for taking the time, Proctor. I really enjoyed it and happy to have been on this interview. It was a pleasure talking with you. And again, as with all the guests, if you have some more stuff that comes out with F-Star or Project Everest and you get some updates, feel free to let me know and we can get you back on or I can make sure to publish some other stuff around it and keep the audience aware of some of the evolution and get more information about F-Star as it continues to progress in the future. So thanks again. It was a pleasure talking with you. Cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.